Greetings and salutations. You are listening to the Into the North podcast, where we take a look at the competitive side of the Commander format, also known as CEDH. I'm one of your hosts, Lyndon, aka Noobzors, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Matt, aka Null. Yo, yo. Reed, aka Sick Robot. How you doing? And very special guest, uh, Phil Gallagher, aka Thraven U. Hello, folks. Nice to be here. Uh, and in this episode, uh, given we have a uh, expert on uh, uh, legacy joining us, uh, we are going to be covering what lessons can we as CDH players learn from legacy players who are, you know, dipping their toes into CDH and uh, bringing their, you know, unique and interesting perspectives to the format. So, uh, before we get into that, um, have you guys been up to anything interesting since the uh, since our last episode that you, you want to share? Um, I can say myself, uh, you know, I participated in the Playmax 3 event, uh, you know, put on on, on PlayDH, that tournament, uh, this past weekend. Uh, I took uh, Thrasios Tago uh, Yeet Control, and uh, I made it to top <laughs> 16, uh, but uh, unfortunately did not make it to the finals. Um, I, you know, and, and this is something... You know, maybe we can talk about uh, a bit with Phil as well. It, it, kind of a unique aspect of CDH is, is partially why you know we, we didn't make it. Um, so it was against uh, in in my pod. Uh, there was uh, I mean we've had joking 101 on the show before. Uh, he was I was going against him. Uh, I had another uh, friend of the show Jeffrey in in my pod as well. But so joking is uh, you know he's playing uh, Tim Narog, um, kind of Adnaw stuff. He's going off on his turn. Um, and one of my other opponents had an, uh, active DRS. So we were kind of like, uh, you know, worry about dog side, blah, blah, blah. And we actually missed, um, not just the player who had the DRS, but kind of collectively as a table missed a good opportunity, um, to actually stop the combo with the DRS. And, and I, I think that's kind of interesting that, uh, in, in CDH, obviously, you know, if you're trying to maximize your own win percentage, you're not just responsible for your own pieces in play. You want to make sure that your opponents, sorry, your, your opponents that are, you know, I guess temporarily your buddies or teammates when someone else is comboing off, don't miss their key pieces on board as well. Um, but yeah, that, that's it for, uh, for me. Yeah, um, actually, and another lesson a- there. Uh, you know, uh, one other thing that um, is also at the other under the end of the table is a person, and uh, politics are also a great way of playing to your outs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also had a very busy day that Saturday at Playmax. Uh, I actually commentated the first round, um, which was pretty cool. Uh, because I watched the uh, first Playmax as well. Um, so it was sort of interesting to see. Sort of the difference, especially in a meta composition, was interesting. And then later that day, I went on to play uh, two matches of my MLC uh, league. Um, I actually picked up a win in one of those, which I'm pretty sure actually locks me for uh, at least semifinals. Um, I'm actually, I think, first in standings over the entire MLC right now, which is pretty neat. <laughs> Hell yeah, Reed. Yeah. Dude, doing the podcast proud. Oh yeah. Uh, so I have two more matches uh, next week. Unfortunately, that is home division matches. So Morgan Spleenface will be in those pods, uh, as well as Ian, previous winner of the MLC, as well as Squirrel Mob, also not a shabby player himself. Uh, <laughs> those ones are going to be pretty significantly harder to win IMO, uh, but we'll still try our best. I think. Gotta gotta buff up that score line a bit, huh? I need the uh, I need the buy to the finals. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know who to to root for. You or Morgan? 
You just root against us both. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Easy I'll call. Say, yeah. <laughs> uh, Matt, anything for you? Eh, not really. And uh, Phil, I know you've had a uh, a particularly busy uh, July so far. Uh, kind yeah, of doing all kinds of CDH stuff, eh? Uh, doing all sorts of kinds of stuff. Uh, I have eight guest appearances across various formats and streams and audio mediums over the next week or so. Uh, so I am keeping very busy. It's like very fun, but working as a full-time content creator over the summer means that sometimes you don't actually have as much free time as you might think you would. <laughs> I mean, what would you do in your free time anyway? Play Magic, right? So, uh... <laughs> no, I, don't, I don't know the last time I've played Magic with my free time. <laughs> like, <laughs> my, my free time creator. now becomes, like, Dungeons & Dragons instead, mm. uh, which is, like, also awesome, but, you know, that would be a different <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Yeah. Nice. Um, okay, cool. So without further ado, uh, let's jump into housekeeping. Um, and as always in housekeeping, we like to give a shout out to our new patrons. Uh, this week we have a new patron, Willow L, that we'd like to give a shout out to. So, you know, big shout out to you again, Willow L. Thanks for your support. Um, as we say in the end of the episode, as always, uh, your support helps uh, support um, <laughs> your support helps support uh, yeah, your, your support um, helps us, uh, you know, improve the quality of the podcast and, uh, you know, maybe do some exciting things that and uh, uh, expanding our content that could be on the horizon. Who knows? Anyway, yeah. moving on <laughs> uh, to new developments. Uh, Reed, I'll give this one to you. Sure. Uh, so new developments this week is, as always, uh, doing some uh, shilling slash advertising uh, uh, for Tier 1 Con. Um, of course, not just shilling and uh, advertising, because we actually do love Tier 1 Con. Um, event last year was fantastic. Event coming up this year is shaping up to be pretty freaking good. Um, there are, I think, a ton of content creators are making it out this time, so... Uh, I believe there are still tickets available. It's going to be tight, but um, if you haven't yet signed up and you can afford to make it out, it's out in uh, Copenhagen, which is going to be pretty awesome. Uh, you definitely should. Uh, again, myself and Morgan are going to be over there. I'll definitely com be competing. Uh, we'll see about Morgan. I think Morgan's 50-50 in terms of uh, either doing commentary or competing, so uh, we'll see how that one shakes out. But yeah, if you can make it out, definitely should. It's uh, going to be a good time, I think. Yeah. Every time yeah. we bring it up, I feel a, a sadness in my heart that I'm unable to make it this year. Yeah, if that yeah, that, that should serve as recommendation enough for our listeners to try and make at this event. It was so much was fun last year. Fun I last cannot year. stress into this enough. Yeah, uh, definitely going to be trying to make it back next year. Um, cool, cool. Well, that's uh, that's enough of all this uh, preamble. Let's get into the main topic, um, which is going to be lessons from legacy with Thraben Yu. Uh, see, it's uh, we got that nice little alliteration in there, and uh, the lessons play on you, Thraven. You, uh, it's great. Okay, I'm, I'm patting myself on the yeah. back big time for uh, for this title. Yeah, that, that episode <laughs> took hours. That hours to yeah, workshop yeah. that one title. It, it it did well in um, in trials. You know, in uh, you know, we we threw that out there to to the public and got some surveys, and you know, we we, we had to spend big money to kind of run this through. Uh, through testing groups, but uh, yeah, just this tons is, this of focus is, groups. Yeah, A B is, testing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This this was the title that seemed to, to work the best. Yeah, A B U um, testing. Yeah, man, yeah, exactly. man, they just kept leaning into this joke instead of just cutting it and let it go, folks. It's gonna, it's gonna be an episode. <laughs> yeah, Here we go. It's a trademark. We're, we lean into everything way too hard. 
Um, <laughs> okay, cool. So I'll I'll kick things off. Um, uh, Mr. Phil Gallagher, three been you. Who are you? What are you known for? And <laughs> what do you do in the MTG space? <laughs> well, you've covered my name, so I'll let that one go. But as far as who I am, I am a variety Magic the Gathering content creator who posts daily YouTube content under the handle ThrabenU on YouTube. I tend to emphasize interesting decks, cool interactions, rather than necessarily the most meta decks. But the approach that I take is very educational. And I am a, a very competitive player, all sorts of IQ top eights, one legacy challenges, that sort of stuff. So I take bad and questionable decks and try to pilot them as optimally as I can and try to keep it both educational and entertaining. He is also the co-host of a uh, really, really good uh, legacy podcast, um, the Eternal Glory podcast. I just wanted to shout that out because I, I am a avid listener. Uh, and uh, if any of our listeners are interested in, uh, uh, I mean, legacy content or you know even just variety of content, you play all kinds of different formats. Yeah, definitely check out Phil's YouTube channel and uh, you know check out the Eternal Glory podcast uh, as well. I will also confirm. The content is top-notch. It doesn't really matter if you play the formats or not. Um, you just go check it out anyway, because it's very entertaining. There's a lot to take away from basically any video there. Um, and it's also yeah. great to just have on in the background, because Phil has possibly one of the most soothing, soothing voices in uh, MTG <laughs> content creation. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm, I'm bedtime noises for a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> Ma magic gameplay ASMR. Let's go. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, it was actually kind of funny. I think a, a YouTube uh, comment on one of our uh, episodes, someone said, like, I don't even play CDH, but I like listening to your guys' podcast. I was like, what? Why would you do that? And then me over here listening to the Eternal Glory podcast on the rig and there's not even touching Legacy at all. Um, so yeah, I, I, now I, I get it a bit more now. Um, but yeah, so as a, uh, as a bit of a follow-up to that, uh, can you give us a brief summary of your MTG history? Yeah, um, so I've been playing since Scars of Mirrodin. Um, well, actually, slightly before its release, but that was kind of my first release that I was around for. And I basically jumped into Legacy after I had been playing Magic for just a few months. Like, I had been playing, uh, I don't know, maybe six months or something like that before I just started getting into Legacy. So I kind of immediately went from kitchen table to, like, oldest and like arguably most intricate magic format like v vintage has a similar uh just insane number of card interactions and huge card pool um and i i kind of did floor trading just kind of like going to events and trading and grinding value for for about a year before i actually had accrued a good enough legacy collection to start playing in events I very quickly became known for the legacy deck called Death and Taxes, which is a mono-white control deck where uh, your controlling elements are stapled to hate bears. So the things that you refer to as hate bears and stacks in EDH, that's my jam in legacy. Nice. Yeah, and I mean, we... Nice. Uh... We, for for listeners, we we played uh, a couple games of CDH with Phil just before recording, and uh, he busted out, I guess, true to form, a uh, mono white <laughs> mono white Heliod. Yeah. Probably the truest form that you could be in uh, in terms of deck selection. With with the Thalia <laughs> playmat, of course. Oh yeah, hundred yeah, percent. Yeah. 
Um, okay. Yeah, but I, I played in a whole lot of competitive tournaments. I made a website for death and taxes, which was thrabenuniversity.com. Surprise, surprise, given my current <laughs> username. And I've been involved in a lot of major legacy projects like the Legacy Premier League, and I'm one of the biggest legacy content creators these days. Dude, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, so here, I'll, I'll throw uh, the interview cap over to... Uh to Matt and then, uh, you know, and then read as well. So yeah, take it away. sure. Well, um, we are a CDH podcast and I guess we're just kind of curious, like, how did you get to CDH? What is your, what is your journey here? So I played a little bit of regular EDH about 10 years ago. And then this summer, um, I, I went full-time content creator over the summer. Normally, I'm a, a Latin teacher during the year, and I normally work a summer job, but things are going well enough with the content that I said, I'm not going to do that this year. I'm going to focus full-time on content creation. And because I had that time, I decided I was going to try to get in touch with other parts of the Magic community that I hadn't really interacted with. You know, a lot of people play Magic in different ways, and Commander slash EDH is one of those largest ways. And I would, I would be a fool not to try to understand and get to know some of those people, right? Especially if I have any aspirations at doing magic stuff professionally at all. So I built yeah, a Zongsha EDH deck and a Marwin CEDH deck as my starting points. And I'm starting to expand from there. Well, yeah, those are kind of solid starter choices. <laughs> Sanchez. It was tons of fun. Well, I don't so, yeah, actually know that one. Marwin is a good first CEDH uh, <laughs> deck. We can we can talk about that or not. No, uh, Marwin is Marwin will teach you a lot of great lessons, like um, the <laughs> kinds of interacting <laughs> interaction pieces that you'll see from your opponents and uh, the speed of the format and anything. So I don't know. Yeah. I think it's good. Yeah. I guess let me explain why I chose that. Sure. Yeah, I think that yeah, would be please. a great <laughs> insight, actually. So, as a competitive player, one of my general rules of thumb is that if I don't understand a format, the first thing that I do is play an incredibly linear deck that does not care about what my opponent is doing so that I can start learning the cards in the format. That is so awesome. That's that's literally advice that we've... we've uh said on this podcast many times that uh it used to be that um like a good people would would recommend stuff like yeson to new players because yeah. it was cheap um but yeson is you know not like it's got so many different branching paths you can you can go down because of you know just being a tutor in the command zone then also it's uh you know part it's like reactive so you have to know what your opponents are doing and sometimes you have to preempt what they're about to do by getting um the exact right piece so we, uh, you know, we've said that that's a terrible suggestion for new players. But new players, you know, I, I've said in the past, I'm like Godo, where it's a very straightforward kind of linear plan. So then you don't have to use a lot of your brain power figuring out what you have to do, and then you can kind of, you know, just sit and observe and watch what your opponents are doing. So that the fact that that's uh, your approach is is actually just super awesome. Yeah. So I I spent a few hours goldfishing the deck. Um, I had played plenty of Legacy Elves, so a lot of the lines were kind of similar to stuff that I was used to doing. Uh, the deck goldfishes pretty well. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, that's that's I that's a trade with a lot of CDH like just linear combo decks tend to things, goldfish yeah. pretty well. <laughs> the issue is three wins. that as soon as your opponent's interaction starts getting involved 
you just have like so many fail points in the deck and your deck is asking for a lot of things to go right in order for you to combo off because you not only need Marwin, you also need usually either two or th usually three counters on Marwin plus at least two other combo pieces beyond that. Usually it's two pieces that give you infinite mana and then one other piece that has to be your outlet. So when you actually start looking at the number of things that have to go right and the number of specific cards that you have to have in order to consistently go off, I just don't think you're anywhere in the consistency ballpark of some of the other proactive decks. So while it was a great thing to play for my first, like, dozen CEDH games, I just don't think the deck is tournament viable. Like, I, I don't think the, the deck is, like, an S-tier deck. And yeah. if this is a competitive format, I don't think you should be playing anything than some of the app other than some of the absolute best decks, unless you have a very, very, very good reason to. Like, oh, in my meta where Thassa's Oracle isn't around, this deck has huge, uh, like local level implications for me, and it's going to be really strong here. Um, but if Marwin yeah. is not going to win me tournaments, if I ever decide to play in one, I shouldn't spend a lot of time working with it i should move on to trying to learn something else fair enough that's definitely yeah. actually um sort of uh it's it sort of um i would say uh closely linked to um one of the uh recommendations that i have for new players a lot of the time as well which I, i'm pretty sure we've uh gone over this a bit on the podcast but i'll just touch back on it again which is um i, I think it's really important for new players to um so, so to get a general idea of what's in the format, uh, it's a really good idea to play um, just, again, like, low-color linear combo decks with not a lot of uh, dissonant trees. But also, on the other side, I think it's really important as well, once people have sort of learned with those decks, uh, is to uh, then go to probably the highest end of the format, so four and five color staple piles, uh, and play some of those decks as well. Just so you have context for pretty much both sides of the format in terms of so here's like here here's what just like a proactive game plan looks like so that you can actually go pay, pay attention to your opponents and then here's what the actual like top of the format looks like so that you have like power level context for um like how other decks that you're playing should stack up to like what what is actually at the top of the format right now. Yeah, I actually talked about that recently um, with one of my podcast co-hosts, um, Brian Koval. Um, he calls this finding true north, like. Yes. Okay. Learn, yes. Learn the basics of the format with some deck, and then play the best deck for a little while, even if you don't intend on always like playing that deck, just so you understand the play patterns and cards that are in the best deck. Because a lot of times, by piloting a deck, you learn things that are not obvious from the other side of the table. And it's actually even um, it's I would say that's even productive for experienced players in the format, especially if um in CDH or in other formats, if you do a lot of brewing and playing with weird, wonderful decks, like Phil does on his channel all the time, if you're the type of player that plays a lot of um, just, like, homebrews or stuff that's sort of uh, in, like, levels of the format that, like, aren't, you're not consistently seeing, like, top eights from those decks or whatever in tournaments or even, like, day twos a lot of the time. I think it's actually pretty important a lot of the time, um, like, every... Maybe every, like, six months or so, uh, depending. Just to, like, play a couple of matches with, like, what you think the best deck is. Just so you sort of, like, reorient yourself and then have context again. Um, to just keep brewing. Yeah, playing against the best deck also just, like, checks your own ego. 
because sometimes you think you have this really good idea and then you play against the best deck for a while and you go like oh okay like i was getting <laughs> cute i gotta i gotta rein it in a little bit every every uh <laughs> every uh every every deck in a, every competitive deck every brew has a great plan until i got thoughts east horse world <laughs> thoughts east yeah. well i guess talking about the best deck like just entering the format now what do you think is the best deck what stands um, out i don't know for sure so like the the thing about playing cedh is you are being put into pods with humans who have human opinions and their own personal preferences and a lot of times you are playing against something that in some way is a representation of the person you're playing against even if it is kind of competitive so like i have not played against like i would say like the full range of tier one deck list yet my general feeling is that deck lists that have blue and timna are good <laughs> that is Can a confirm. great call <laughs> yeah yeah if you could learn I, anything that's a that's a good lesson i, I, <laughs> that's a good I think takeaway. that's that's probably the fastest that I've seen somebody come to the uh, conclusion, which I I would I would say is probably the correct conclusion. Um, I'm sure the rest of the podcast has similar opinions. Um, maybe no way. I mean, we that, didn't definitely do that, like a, an episode called the Thrasios Timna problem. Yeah, years ago. Just, <laughs> it's that that might be the fastest I've seen somebody pick up on the fact that Timna is possibly the best commander in the format. Yeah. Well, yeah. you're also, talking uh, to someone who played against Luris Legacy for a long time. <laughs> yep. Yep. So, like, I, I just feel that comparison right, right there. Yeah. Just, like, card advantage that is sitting in your command zone, uh, coupled with a combo piece or other enabler in, in the command zone. Uh, like, it, it's just, like, very obvious to me, right? And the decks yep. that have two cards sitting in the command zone, like having 98 card like other other main decks so that like also very 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 slightly reduces your variance and just gives you that plus one extra card in constructed formats it's like having the yorian versus not having the yorian right it's just a yep. little advantage over other decks and instead of having a downside the upside is that you just get to play four colors instead of like three or yeah. whatever you'd be playing usually imagine imagine the world where you get to play uh Luris plus something else in the companion zone and it's actually not even a downside actually they they work better together like that's it, it's outrageous partner partner is maybe one of the uh i mean it's contentious but i i think people will, will often say that it's one of the biggest mistakes in uh in edh um yeah you know, design I, I i very much believe that companion is probably the worst designed 60 card mechanic like unnerfed luris broke vintage like they had to ban <laughs> a card in vintage folks yeah. there's literally no yep. other banned cards in vintage other than things like anti and manual dexterity dude like, imagine a card so good that even when they increase its cost by three it's still ban worthy like that's <laughs> that, that's outrageous it's just like even they so they nerfed two things by three and then they still have to ban Luris and legacy and then they still have to ban zerda and legacy and now yurian is potentially on the table to also yeah. be bannable <laughs> dude what do you mean they increase its cost by three now you can just violate it in and it's uncounterable <laughs> <laughs> true um, um yeah, but yeah. actually speaking of yeah speaking of getting into the format um i'd actually be i mean obviously the podcast is very interested in this i have a special interest in this um because I 
help a I try to do a lot of work to help new players get into the format. Um, so I'm really interested in like what the hurdles that you encountered, like sort of trying to get into CDH a bit more. Um, like you sort of came across, uh, and then sort of like anything that you think might have ha uh, helped from your background in terms of uh, getting into the format. So. Everything wasn't really in one place. Mm. I, like, that was kind of my, my first issue, is I, I, like, went around and I said, like, where do I go to learn about this format? And I got, like, so many wonderful messages from members of the CEDH community who were, like, very willing to send me stuff. My first question was, like, why hasn't anyone compiled this in one place? And so I just, like, made a page on my webpage where it's like, okay, here's all the CEDH resources that people sent me. Just, like, here's the podcast, here's the written stuff, here's the introductory videos, here's your gameplay channels, here's your how-to-play-webcam-game stuff. Um, like, my, my first hurdle was, like, I was expecting to be able to read about everything in one place, and that didn't really exist. I think some people are currently working on changing that. I think there's a, yeah. a budding, uh, is it CEDH guide? It's ch.guide uh, as a website, and it is a fantastic resource. If you're getting into the format for the first time, anybody that's listening to this, definitely go check out cdh.guide. Um, I think this is basically exactly what you're talking about in terms of just getting everything in the same place. Yeah, so so that aggregation was kind of the, the first thing um, that I kind of had to jump over. Um, as far as other hurdles... I, I was pretty good via spell table so long as I could actually click on the cards and read them, but, like, I definitely had to have, like, Scryfall up on my phone as well for, like, the ones that were, like, <laughs> yeah. too blurry to be captured. Oh, yeah. um, I will say that as a, like, legacy and vintage player, I probably know 85% of the cards that are being played in CEDH just at a glance, uh, minus, like, some of the random lands, but, like, those are kind of whatever. Uh, whereas yeah. when I play, like, regular EDH, it's just like, I have no idea what 90% of the permanents <laughs> that are in play are right now. Um, yeah, there, so it's it's accessible uh, if you have followed competitive formats. The, uh, well, there, there's kind of a joke, you know, Commander is, is you know, Magic's kind of, I don't even know if you call it flagship, but it's certainly the biggest format um, of, of in magic and it many new players come through edh and it's always baffling to me i mean i came through you know edh largely as well but you're you're coming to a format where there's four players with a uh, hundred card singleton decks uh who have access to the entire uh history of uh oh, every single card in, in or just about every single card ever printed in magic you know twenty thousand plus cards uh, and because of the way that, you know, Commander is, especially if it's in casual, the amount of viable cards that you could see in a deck are, like, almost endless. You know, it, it is a crazy, uh, <laughs> crazy kind of ask to get a new player to, and just kind of, like, it's very sink or swim. Um, so, I mean, at least, at least you, you, you know, CDH is a, a bit smaller of a card pool, and, uh, you know, as, as you said, you, you, you're familiar with a lot of them from your legacy and vintage experience, but I did always just find that funny, the new players joining EDH and, like, how, the, the fact that they, they just... even keep playing Magic after that is, is honestly a miracle. Um, yeah. Yeah, I have a great anecdote here. So last night I was doing a charity stream, and I was playing my Zongsha EDH deck, and someone else in the pod 
owned a Zongsha EDH deck as well. And I played a Bedlam, which makes, makes it so that no creatures can block. And she was like, oh my gosh, I need that card. I've never seen this card before. <laughs> Despite the fact that it's like an absolute perfect fit for her commander deck, right? Yeah. Like the yep. card pool is massive in casual EDH. And it's relatively small in competitive EDH. So for example, if you take any given, say, monocolored deck, you're probably going to share, I don't know, 30 to 50 cards with that other monocolored deck just because like, yeah. the core of, say, the hate bears or the green ramp is just going to be so shared between those decks. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think Reed uh, also, also asked you this a bit. Um, but yeah, so when, coming, um, when starting CDH, uh, what, in your opinion, was made easier by coming from a legacy background? I guess aside just, from just uh, just like the card cards, yeah, Any, like anything you know, play pattern wise, or I mean, because it is there are quite different. I mean, there are some similarities certainly, but uh, it is quite a leap to go from you know one v one sixty card to uh, uh, four player free for all. Um, like this isn't necessarily from being a legacy player, but from being a competitive tournament Magic player, like. I know how to watch my triggers. I know priority. I know sequencing. I know like how to be thinking about like what my opponents are doing and what I need to play around. So even when I'm missing pieces of the information, you know, I can I can put things together pretty quickly. And there have been very few times where I'm like, okay, how does this interaction work? Like I have I have the rules right. knowledge I need. I have the experience I need working with competitive formats and I guess this also meant that, like, I just conceptually understood the, like, play-to-win attitude of this format that mm. might be a little, like, bristly or off-putting to someone who is coming from casual commander, you know? Mm. There's not the rule zero talk of, like, and what are you comfortable with? Are you okay with infinite turns? It's like, no, I am here to <laughs> no. kill you, hopefully fast, you know? CEDH is often described as this like turn two or turn three format, but in reality, it's probably like a turn five or turn six format because people just yeah. get stopped and there's interaction. Yeah, it's 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 sort of a turn three format in the same way that a uh, modern was supposed to be a turn four format in terms of like most games don't end on turn four, but they're like the fastest decks in the format are like ending the game on turn four. Um, you just need to be but, doing something yeah. impactful. Or, yeah, or be prepared to answer something impactful from your opponents by turn three. Certainly these days, CDH games are definitely going up to, like, turn six pretty consistently. Yeah. I would yeah. almost say that I play longer games in CDH than I do in, like, non-casual like casual EDH. <laughs> <laughs> Which is incredible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my... Uh, actually, here, here, Phil, question for you. What's the longest game of Magic in any format you've ever played? Usually, it's usually in EDH because, you know, four players and games can get, you know, into weird kind of stabilized equilibriums but yeah what, what's the longest game you've ever played in terms of time or turn count time um well the issue is that competitive games on magic online or in paper have a round clock so mm. like there is a hard cap there i have absolutely like manually milled someone out just by like forcing them to draw their entire library by taking you know 53 yeah. turns or whatever i've done that in constructed before um but I would imagine games of casual commander where everyone can kill each other's stuff, but no one can win. They can go on for literal hours. So uh, my uh, my previous record for longest game um, was a mono blue CDH pod. Uh, 
which you know speaking of people <laughs> being unable to, to like close games like you know whenever when people are playing uh yep. i was playing baral with just a one three and then like a zombies out there zero two or whatever so uh that and my none previous of them have good win cons even <laughs> yeah, aside yeah. from combat like they're just all terrible <laughs> my uh my previous record was four and a half hours which i recently smashed with a six hour game <laughs> that was uh that was a marathon. So yeah, uh, games of CDH, especially you know, de- certainly depends on pod composition. But uh, you know, it don't don't get confused. Games of CDH can certainly uh, go very, very, very long. Um, cool. Uh, yeah, Matt, uh, I guess are we- yeah. Where we just uh, keep going here? Um, so I I, this, I I actually like this question a lot, and I you really wanted to have the answer to it too um which is just uh what actually what surprised you to find that cdh has but legacy doesn't or even uh potentially vice versa yeah vice versa as well hmm. okay cedh has free interaction spells that are not <laughs> legal in legacy yeah. So there have been a couple of times where I've been comboing off and I'm like, okay, people are tapped out. I don't need to play around Force of Will. And then I'll get the, what's the free black kill spell? If you can Deadly Rollick. Yep. Yeah. And then I'll just like get hit by a Deadly Rollick while I'm trying to combo off. So like I expected to know what all of the free interaction was because like it's just so played in Legacy and Vintage, all your Force of Wills, Force of Negation, Snuff Outs, that sort Even of stuff. Packs. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I expected to know all of those, and then I keep getting hit by these uh, commander uh, control free cards. Um, I, I, I will tell you, they're just as shocking to us every time. I mean, yeah. you, you, learn, you learn to expect them. It doesn't mean that you're any happier when you see them out of the other side of the table when there's, Dude. like, just zero telegraph, and you're just like, well, hope they don't have the SWAT here. Yeah, everyone, all of your opponents could be tapped out. Oh, I'm sorry. As I was uh, say, all, of your, all, all of your opponents could be tapped out, and uh, you're like, well... I guess I don't have to worry about this, but I've still got to worry about fear, SWAT, force, force, uh, misdirection, pact, mind break trap, like misstep sometimes. <laughs> yeah, misstep. Yeah, it just misstep, it goes yeah. on, man. I guess the other thing that's really surprising to me is how much variance there can be based on pod composition. Um, so I'll, mm. I'll I'll do two specific games here. Um, I I recently played a game uh with brian koval one of my podcast co-hosts uh where he controlled an archivist of ogma and he probably drew like maybe literally 20 cards off that card over the course of a game and i played one in a game that we played right before we started recording this (laughs) and i think it lived three turn cycles and i drew zero cards off of it yeah so just like (laughs) the cards that your opponents can play will impact how good some of your cards are especially if you have these situational cards like uh say uh what is it gnome gnome terramancer deep gnome terramancer yeah, yeah deep gnome yep. terramancer um, archivist of ogma uh or even like the uh, rhystic study mystic remora sorts of things yeah even like, like, like runic Rune, Rune, armasaur is another good one too that one so i've been in pods where runic no, armasaur no, no, draws like 20 absolutely and nothing just, or i feel yeah. like dino has never been good <laughs> I, I stand by this. The dino has always been bad. Uh, no, no, no. I've seen it go it, absolutely ham. Dino yeah. was great in Flash in Flash times. <laughs> it was it was fine in Flash times. <laughs> yeah. I, I would take like I would take like many many value. Anyway, tangent over. I'll pass back. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But yeah, just like yeah, I I know you mean that. Like um, there's just like yeah, it's there's just a ton of uh variance in terms of not just pod composition, but also a lot of decks just because you're in um hundred card singleton uh like you can play a lot of really great cards and you can have a pretty consistent game plan um but it's sort of interesting in terms of just a lot of the time the way that game plan gets executed like sometimes runs into certain pieces and sometimes doesn't like even like for example when you're playing marwin um even if you like are playing against an archivist of agma say on the on the board there are a lot of hands that like don't feed it at all. There are a lot of hands that defeat it with like every card in your hand. You have like three fetch lands, you have two creature tutors, you have like another like land tutor on deck or something in your hand. So it's just, yeah, there, there's just, <laughs> I think, uh, maybe just variance in general. <laughs> yeah, even yeah. with my Heliod deck the, that I was just playing, like the first game that I, I played out, I just like slammed a turn one Sarah's Ascendant and just like had this giant life linking creature and I was going to pressure your life totals immediately and then back it up with some hate pieces. And then the second game I played, it was like, well, I have Walking Ballista in the opener, so I'm going to get to about, you know, six mana and just attempt to go for it. And I went for it with protection. It didn't work. Um, cool. So... Coming from Legacy, uh, what similarities slash differences have you noticed between the approach that Legacy players uh, and CDH players take to their respective formats? So um, this can be like card evaluation, uh, differences, deck selection, uh, play patterns, you know, card pool, you know, that sort of stuff. I feel like a lot of the CEDH players and a lot of the deck lists that I've looked at, except having highly situational cards with high upside whereas in legacy a lot of times you're just trying to play the best low variance cards that you can like legacy is full of like these brainstorms ponders preordains all these things that are just trying to get your deck to do very close to the same thing and you don't have very many singletons and obviously in cedh you can't have any singletons but a lot of the decks that I've looked at have cards for niche situation. So for example, the Marwin deck is playing Endurance to combat Thassa's Oracle, even though it's not like particularly great at getting the Endurance when it wants to have the Endurance. Right. And I found a lot of CEDH decks are willing to take these incredibly high ceiling, incredibly low floor cards rather than play cards that are more consistent. I definitely actually... agree in general. Um, I, I do think that Endurance has like more uses beyond just stopping the Thoracal, but it, it, maybe that's the primary reason why people put it in. But like, you know, I want a big part of this format is just top tutors and like that'll shut off a top tutor. No, um, it won't. It doesn't uh... actually shut, it's bottom. <laughs> but it does. It it bottoms them um, instead of. But it does it does hit things like does, breach. Yeah, yeah, it hits stuff like breach. It hits stuff Reanimator. Like value yeah. Decks. yeah. Oh oh um, yeah. It, like, it, uh, let it's me also, let it's me also use a good a card for loops as well yeah. to yeah. like really show this. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's what's the colorless producing land? Is it Emergence Zone that lets you play stuff with yep. Flash? Yep. yep, that's the one. So like, I I looked at the Marwin mana base and I'm like, hey folks, you aren't playing enough green pips in your mana producing <laughs> yep. lands like yeah. this is beyond yeah. greedy like you need to cut some of these 
and yeah. I got a lot of flack for saying that. And then I like busted out the hypogeometric calculator and I was like, hey, literally a third of these don't produce <laughs> turn one green mana. Like, yep. this is a problem. And so I started cutting colorless lands from my, my mana base. But people, yeah, that, I, people would immediately come back with, yeah, but you can go off in response to Athasa's Oracle. It's like, no, <laughs> if I could have tried to go off, I already would have tried doing it because I am a proactive deck. And I, I just didn't like some of these niche cards. Um, like Mouth of Ronum is another one where it's like, mm. yeah, that's really cool for your crop rotation package. But like, is it worth having that over just a forest or another green producing land? And uh, I don't, I don't know that it is. Yeah, yeah, I ran into that problem when I revisited Yassan recently. Um, I was like, oh, okay, I, I was just mulliganing all the time because I'm like, you know, you you don't need that many lands to have a good Yassan opener, right? You just, you know, like a piece of ramp and uh, you know a forest and, and something else. That's that's all you need. But I was like, man, I, I'm finding these hands that have uh, you know a ramp piece, but then my lands are just two colorless lands. I'm like, this this is not. This cannot be happening, man. I like, especially when you need to be mulliganing for your ramp for Yassan. I don't also want to have to uh, be mulliganing all the time because I'm not hitting my colors, right? I'm just going to be starting the game with four cards in hand every time, if that's the case. Yeah, this is actually. I mean, well, I I'm fully um, down to expand this into uh, just the larger discussion about the uh, <laughs> just sort of like narrow cards in general, but specifically a pet peeve of mine um, for a long time at this point is that uh, CDH players really don't care about their mana nearly as much as they should. <laughs> um, there there are far too many uh, like four color decks out there right now. They're on like yeah, I'll play Ancient Tomb and Emergent Zone. And a gemstone caverns, <laughs> and maybe something else, and it's just like that is <laughs> you. You get to have one of those, and it's probably going to be the ancient tomb. <laughs> so I think part of the issue here is that a lot of people are approaching mana in this format from the perspective of I get one free mulligan, I can use that to smooth out my mana base problems, instead of approaching it from like the perspective of. I get one free mulligan to find a hand that's more degenerate if my first hand isn't degenerate enough. Yeah. And if I you are guess, pitching I... your hand one because of mana, like, you are potentially just, like, throwing away a hand that otherwise could have been degenerate if it had the correct yep. colors. Well, and there's also... I, it, there, there's also something to be said as well for, um... Uh, just... Maybe not even mindset, but there there's some inherent biases in terms of uh, playing CDH a lot of the time, I found, where um, there, there's just, in general, more variance that can lead to you uh, either being mana screwed or just, like, not having the colors on time. And, like, sometimes you just have to accept that even with a good mana base, you're not going to have uh, the colors that you need. Obviously, this isn't necessarily the case in monocolor or even two-color a lot of the time, but for the higher-color decks, that's just sort of the case. And I feel like... Um, People tend to subconsciously write off like, "Oh, this hand's unkeepable," but it's not the mana base's fault. It's just the variance of the format that's at that's at fault here. Um, where I think a lot of the time that's not necessarily the case, and it's definitely either a mix of the two, or even primarily the uh, building of the mana base, or even just situational cards uh, overall in the first place. That people are just sort of like, it just just write off. Uh, bad hands or bad experiences with cards as just inherent variants and just sort of move past that without thinking any deeper about it. Yeah, well, one thing too, uh, kind of along the lines um, that Phil was saying of people using their 
mulligans kind of as as a or they're using that as a bit of a crutch to fix kind of um consistency issues in the mana base um or, or even stuff like ramp because you know I, I was doing a uh analysis uh i actually did this like a couple months ago about um you know how many if you want to have uh you know two lands in your opener plus one card of you know some card type like what would be how, how often you know based off the different numbers um how often are you gonna have to mulligan and then so we I, I did this in terms of um expected hand size right you need a lot of lands and a lot of let's say we're going to use ramp as an example right you need a lot of lands and a lot of ramp if you want to be consistently opening those and not having to mulligan too deep for them um so like to me, I I think it definitely um there's different approaches to you know mulliganing and, and deck construction in this respect. But uh personally, I much prefer to load up on um you know lands and ramp so that I'm consistently hitting those cards in my hand, and then I can mulligan for the more broken pieces, right? Like then you're you can mulligan for your um you know tutors or heuristic studies and remoras and the more broken pieces because you've got, you know. The enough lands and ramp in your deck uh that you don't need to mulligan just to make your deck function then you can actually mulligan for you know as, as phil was saying like degenerate hands <laughs> which is just sort of the core of the format let's be honest run more lands guys <laughs> <laughs> yeah so the marwin deck that i was playing for example has 27 lands 28 if you count the uh turn timber symbiosis as a full land sure uh and like that feels very very light to me mm. yeah i i, I, I think... personally so um, at least in marwin when your commander is a dork it can i can get that a bit more um but i'll be honest like there's very few decks um i go below 30 lands in um unless it's like you know i mean i went below 30 lands in cody um like the, those are kind, of, but I I, I see people <laughs> putting even, like going down then, to like twenty seven lands. lands. Yeah, yeah, Cody can. Yeah, Cody certainly can. And it's like, but I just see people, uh, you know, in like a a Thrasios Timna deck that's you know maybe kind of trying to go a bit mid range as well. There'll be like twenty eight lands, twenty seven lands, and Mox Diamond in there. I'm like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> that's 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 crazy to me. I think for certain decks that support the full suite of elves and artifacts, I would go below thirty. But that's basically it. I, yeah, I don't I, even you need a you need a, if you want to open two lands in your hand and a, and uh rocks you need a lot of lands and or sorry not just rock but like ramp uh you need a lot of lands and ramp like it it's yes. it's I quite mean, this, a bit this does just illustrate though this entire discussion does illustrate why dorks are so like are are much better than people like assume at face value in this format um just because they increase the consistency of your ramp so much yes they're not as fast as like artifact mana in a lot of ways um it's not as busted as like being able to like discount talismans or stuff or like use talismans um to like fix mana during storm turns or whatever but the consistency of like being able to play that many dorks in your deck like that many additional mana acceleration sources is just huge in terms of the impact that it has on like being able to skimp on lands, I'm not saying you should be skipping a huge amount of lands, but just being able to like sort of reduce the number that you're playing just because you have you can consistently have a dork, just huge. Anyway, that's my dork shill for this episode. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I mean, you know, one thing too, I think um, you know, we were talking about about uh EDH or CDH players, um, you know, maybe getting a bit greedy on mana bases and stuff. But I'm sure this is probably something um you can attest to, Phil, just 
I think this is something kind of true broadly in magic, uh, where players tend to be not um, the best at making mana bases or figuring out the correct amount of lands to play. I think there's like a anecdote about, um, when pros would take like top five or t take like five O deck lists, um, to test them for like tournaments and stuff. The first thing they do is, uh, cut what they think is the worst spell and put in a land. I will know? tell you that like as someone who does donation deck lists for my channel so i almost never just play a deck list that i i want to play i'm always playing deck lists made by other people uh pretty much always the first thing i do is look at the mana base like see are there enough lands do the lands produce the correct colors and at least a third of the time i am either adding lands or removing utility lands to actually make the mana bases work I think conceptually when people brew, they get really excited about like the cards and the combos and the interactions and the mana base is pushed to the side. And like it's the last thing that's done when in reality like a good mana base is often what makes a deck successful, right? Uh in in CEDH like literally not having the correct mana pip can can just like cost you an entire turn cycle, right? Yep. Like, I can't combo off because I don't have the extra blue mana here. And, like, if, if you don't pay attention to your mana base, that sort of thing is going to happen more frequently, especially in these, like, four-color, like, greed piles of various natures. Yeah. Um, so I guess we've got a couple, like, sub-points on here on the similarities and differences between CDH and Legacy. Um, how, how have you viewed... Um, uh, in your experience kind of talking with cdh players um and how they look at cards i guess have you uh you haven't been doing too much kind of cdh stuff since like a new set has has come out right like you haven't seen cdh players kind of look at spoilers have you uh no not really okay so i, I guess you're uh it might be kind of a bit uh different here but i guess you can kind of get some implicit uh understanding of, of how cdh players evaluate cards based off of like deck composition um but is there uh is is there some some things that you think that legacy players uh are valuing you know really high that cdh players are are just like you know that, that you think oh wow this is like just makes so much sense and then a cdh player will be like nah this this ain't it i'm not i'm not putting this in my deck list anything like that that you've noticed so i i think the thing that was least obvious to me and this is kind of taking it in a different direction but i think this is still useful the thing that was least obvious to me is how many times situational things can trigger in a four-player format. Um, oh, Archivist yeah. of Ogma was one uh, that really took me by surprise. Like, that was a card that is, like, probably not legacy playable. Like, it, it's, like, maybe close. Like, I'm going to try it out for a legacy video once that card actually becomes available <laughs> on Magic Online. Which Wizards. Looking forward Wizards to Wizards help with the card availability issues, please. <laughs> um, but, uh, like, when I saw that card, like, in play, just triggering so many times in a turn cycle, or the, the four mana Teferi that can be activated in every turn cycle... There's some of those things that trigger like once per turn that went from absolutely unplayable to like situational format all-stars. And I think it's really easy to dismiss the cards based on your evaluation of them in a 60-card two-player context. Yeah, there I there I think that's actually 
probably like the primary difference in card evaluation between um, 60 card in general and uh, four player or just multiplayer at all, uh, especially free for all formats where um, the the value engines and the uh, the one for oneing is just so much different in terms of what you're actually looking for, where um, it's a lot less valuable to have a card that like just goes like two for one on its own in the format. And it's so much more valuable to like have something that like have value engines or just have um, engines period that scale up with uh, the number of game actions being taken or the number of opponents or just the number of things that your opponents are putting down. Um, and this spreads out over like so many different things, right? Like as you're saying, Archivist of Ogma, uh, Teferi uh, Time, or not Time Rattler, Teferi, what? Master uh, of Time. As Master of Time. Um, and then obviously like Ristic Study, huge when you have like, two additional opponents that are going to be casting stuff into it. Same thing with Mr. Kimura. But it even goes so far as to... Uh, so it changes evaluation on stuff like Pyroclasms as well, right? Like, you have, like, one opponent playing at, like, two dorks. Yeah, it's a two-for-one, but, like, yeah, are the things that you're clearing actually that useful? Versus in, like, a three-player format, or a four-player format, where, like, okay, all my opponents played, like, a dork or a ragavan or an Esper Sentinel or just, like, some random X2. And then, like, somebody played an extra one. This is now, like... And one for four against the entire table, and you just clean up so much more, right? And the thing is, too, with something like a pyroclasm, is you have three opponents, right? Like, so something, uh, I guess, I guess you know, it depends on on what cards you're talking about in, in sixty card in particular. But um, a lot of a lot of times, if you're trying to do something more specific, right, uh, to target some, like a specific deck or strategy, you're gonna put that in the sideboard, um, and then you're gonna bring that in in uh, games two and three in your match. Whereas in CDH, you know, the all pods are kind of self-contained, right? There's no sideboarding. So people will run, um, you know, what could, could kind of be viewed as like more silver bullet kind of cards. Um, because odds are when you're versing three opponents, it's going to be hitting at least one of those players, right? So the Pyroclasm, let's say you're against, uh, you know, a, a Grixis Storm deck, you know, Rog Silas or something. Sure, might not be that great, but, you know... It, the odds of there being, you know, some other player in the pod that that's on green with dorks and stuff, or Timna, like, yeah, the pyroclasm will help you clean up there, so it, you can still kind of evaluate that as being a worthwhile include uh, overall. Yeah. Um, one thing that, okay, in a competitive like sixty card format, like you're often playing like seven ish round tournaments, right? And you might get a bad pairing in one of those rounds. And, like, if that happens, it sucks. But, like, you can recover from that. And there's this weird thing where in a a pod, there can be one person whose commander just instantly counters your deck and you just, like, can't do anything against that player. And it's, like, close to an auto-lose situation. So, for example, when I was playing Marwyn and someone just had, like, Jessica in the command zone, I was just like, <laughs> yeah. What, yeah. what is this shit? Like, how, yeah. how am I ever supposed to win? <laughs> and then I imagine, like, someone playing a, a Storm deck might feel similarly, like, when I sit down with this, like, Heliod Ballista deck that just has, like, 30 hate bears in it. Like, there, there are going to be yeah. some very, very tough pairings for individual decks. And I haven't really figured out how to deal with that yet. So I think yes. a lot of times in CDH, not just silver bullets to kind of hate out your opponents, but often people try just and build as a, in a bit of buttons. a toolboxy way, right? <laughs> yeah. So that it's like, at least I'm going to have an out to most 
scenarios and that can be difficult depending on colors right like um if you're in red uh you know you could let's say magda or something right uh stony silence or um you know so like enchantment based hate can be very rough right yeah, uh, if you're playing like you crick like, versus like, rule applause or yeah, something yeah, yeah, yeah you just need like <laughs> chaos warps and feed the swarms but like people will run these less than efficient uh pieces of interaction just because of their versatility and ability to out because uh to out like you know niche pieces of stacks because you know you there there are plenty of opportunities to uh to run into those sorts of things so yeah. Yeah, and there's also I, I think a lot of the time as well, it's just um <laughs> there might not be like a hard answer for like how do I beat the counter matchup in the <laughs> in a given pod of like I think a lot of the time if you're uh playing uh certain decks, uh especially commander centric decks, run into this a lot. Um you just sort of have to accept the bad matchup a lot of the time, which means that Really, a majority of the time for tournament play, um, the actual answer is you just have to pick your deck based on what commanders you think you're going to see and what you're likely to see, um, and just try to dodge that stuff. Or, realistically, the answer that a lot of people go with, which, I mean, sort of sucks for the current health of the format, is you just play a four-color, five-color value pile and just sort of, de by default, have game against most stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that being that's said. kind of the impression I was getting as well. Yeah, but I didn't want to be quite <laughs> yeah. that cynical, being so. Oh no, no, we, we we're fully doomer on this podcast. We have the uh, <laughs> okay, episode no, no, no. on the. I don't think it's timber. quite. That. I don't think it's quite that bad. I think there oh, is sure. yeah, yeah. a solid. I think there is a solid enough metagame where you can bring a deck which does kind of identify a slice that is not being you know hated on, and bring that deck and have just a higher chance of winning. Uh, oh, one, yeah, one thing certainly. I'll also say too is that like there there is something to be said about deck choice and the availability of options. You know, if you're in four color uh four color pile, like uh, just card card uh quality pile, you, you have things like uh Beseju for artifacts enchantments, Odawara if you want for uh kind of just miscellaneous anything. Um and then you, like trophies, Psychrift, uh yeah. Decay. Like you've got lots of kind of generic answers. Um which is great, but even decks uh, that are lower color and don't have those options, like I was talking about with, with Magda, will run uh, these pieces to give them, to try and give them outs to as many things as possible. So you can kind of uh, incorporate that kind of mentality into lower color decks and not just play um, four color piles. And, and, you know, this kind of can segue uh, to something I want to talk about, with, which is deck selection between uh, differences and similarities between legacy players and CDH players. Because... This is I'll I'll share this uh this kind of secondhand quote and hopefully I'm not uh I'm remembering this correctly. So this I was listening to uh the Miscast, which is another uh CDH podcast hosted by um uh Mikey and uh Drake Sasser, who's a uh I guess, he he's been playing CDH for a while um but he is he is uh I guess primarily like identified as a 60 card. Point, yeah. Uh no no he, yeah, he I, from the podcast he was saying longer quite a bit. Oh longer. really? Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah, like, he like was absolutely yeah. a uh, legacy grinder uh, as well. Like, I absolutely recognize his name from the uh, competitive scene. Like, I know him. Oh, yeah, fully. Yeah. So um, he was saying, and, and this, uh, I'm kind of interested to hear, uh, you know, someone who's entrenched in legacy and, and kind of versus the CDH player's mindset, which is uh, when you're going to a tournament, this is, this is something that he said it took him a while to learn as a 60-card player, but that you should just always be taking the best deck. 
Um, and, you know, don't try and be like too cute with like counterpicking to that. Um, and, and, and sometimes, you know, it can be like the best deck for you because you, you don't want to just, you know, sign up for uh, a tournament and then like two days before you're like, oh, go on Goldfish. Okay, Delver looks like the best deck and just jam Delver into the Legacy Tournament if you've never played a game of Delver before in your life. Like, that might not go, you know, well uh, well for you exactly, but uh, I think the kind of think, spirit of it, it is, like, not... is like, if you've got a month out or whatever, or like, you, you should be kind of familiar with what you think the best deck in the format is, and you're going to be doing better if you are, you know, become proficient with that deck and then take it to tournaments. Uh, which is something that, and he was saying that I think CD, that, that CDH players should kind of adopt a similar mentality, and that's the kind of mentality he's adopting in CDH. But I don't think that piece of advice necessarily translates over. Um, and we can kind of look at tournament results in CDH, um, you know, for the past couple of years, where it's not always the four-color pile or whatever that's doing um, the best. I mean, we had the episode with Koibito, the winner of uh, Marchesa, uh, who was playing Magda, right? Uh, and and sometimes in in CDH, uh, because of the four player free for all aspect, you can't win a one v three, right? It's there's when every you know you could do that in a uh, uh, context with like lower power decks, right? Pre cons like I'll take my CDH check one v three anytime, but when other decks are prepared uh, and and they're they're powerful CDH checks as well, one v three is can almost be insurmountable so the power of you know in the episode title it was like the power of the unexpected um but but taking decks where you're going to be either uh threat assessed accurately so so you know same as everyone else or maybe even being underestimated and not getting the full amount of respect that your deck should be given is actually a serious advantage that uh i don't think should be discounted at all in so, Legacy, yeah. we tend to refer to this as either the Brewer's Advantage or the Rogue Advantage. Um, the issue is that a lot of times, like, you might be playing this thing that your opponent doesn't know how to optimally play against, and, like, you steal some wins because of that. But on the other side of the equation, like, doing this often means that you are playing cards that are kind of objectively worse than your opponent's cards. So if mm -hmm. your opponent is a good enough player or they have enough information that they can kind of figure out what's going on, you don't actually have that advantage versus the higher echelon of players. You have that advantage versus the lower echelon of players who you might just beat anyway by just playing the best deck. Uh, yeah, so I mean, Reed, uh, I mean, we all took tier, to tier one con last year. Um, or not we all. I mean, Matt took Cats uh, uh, and then uh, Morgan Reed took the same list of Cody, and then I took a, a variant list of Cody. And we, we took that because, one, we thought that Cody was the best deck, um, but we also felt that people, one, weren't going to completely understand it and uh, wouldn't give it the proper amount of respect it deserves. Uh, so I think, you know, I mean, Reed obviously won the tournament, so, you know, there's, there's some kind of... Uh, letting credence to our yeah, kind of thinking I, there, but I mean, since then, I'm you know, I don't how know many tournaments have you thought where you're like, I want to take Cody, even though it hasn't necessarily decreased in power level, it still has all of its strengths. And, and I think the answer, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't be taking Cody to tournaments, um, too soon still because people know what that deck is about and they will, you know, 1v3 you, uh, and yeah, that I, just 
seems you know how, how unfortunately do you get out from that? the the meta is sort of at this point in my opinion i i, I don't want to bring us too far off trap um from interview and actually on topic discussions but i think uh in terms of tournament meta right now um the idea is really to be just you, you play a deck that people like subconsciously don't respect <laughs> but still has like yeah like a, a very cons- strong strategy yes. still has well not even strong strategy but just a consistent access to its main game plan and you just have to make sure that the main game plan is strong enough obviously magda has like very hyper consistent access to its main game plan right you just you're like your commander is the tutor for the thing you just need time and it plays and at instant speed dwarfs, and it plays stacks. Right? Like it's not like it's doing things that aren't powerful. Yeah, like, it, so it can be the, quite the powerful. Idea, so the idea yeah. the idea is just to be if you're playing like you're either playing a deck that people don't really or that you think the that people won't really have full respect for, but will still be able to do his thing consistently. And typically that means doing it consistently early. Uh this is the Cody thing. Just Cody attempts to just jam turn twos and turn three. I, I don't know how how much you've looked at the uh the format fill. Cody is just five color like turbo Adnaz pile that just tries to end the game on turn two or turn three with protection consistently. Um, the so like the idea is like when people aren't expecting it, you just try to end the game as fast as possible before people sort of know what's going on. Um, but and then even if, if some people are respecting it, deck, like you have a lot of interaction. Like you need you need a everyone th- needs th- to be giving a proper amount of respect that that's for cody specifically but just for other yeah, decks yeah. like if, if you're like you sort of want to have access to early wins but um aside from that um if you're wanting to play the best deck in the format i think unfortunately the answer right now is just that you need to be playing the best deck in the format with a plan for the late game um and to be able to just grind with the rest of the table and sneak in a win or outgrind the rest of the table without seeming too threatening um, just because there's a very real chance that if you play a known quantity, a known quantity, and try to jam early, people are just going to be super prepared for it. Which is why, like, yeah, stuff like Rog Silas is sort of rough right now. Cody's sort of rough right now. Uh, Rog Timna also sort of rough right now. Um, and then even stuff like uh, like I mean, Winota. Obviously, oh. Winota has issues otherwise, um, but that's uh, also one of the main reasons I think why we're not seeing a whole lot of Winota right now is just because it's. Um, you have like this deck that's very obvious what it's about to do, what it's about to do, and it tries to jam like stuff relatively early. I mean, Renoda gets on the ground very quickly um, compared to a lot of other stack stacks. But the issue is that just like it's so easy to focus down, and you just like can't beat a couple of cards. Like you can't beat a Containment Priest, can't really beat uh, Graffiger's Cage. Double room removal on Renoda is basically game over. Um, yeah, it, it, it you have to be in one of the two areas if you're actually trying to like spike a tournament, basically. It's one of the two categories. Anyway, sorry, that was <laughs> far too long-winded for what the actual point at the end was. But <laughs> back, back to deck selection. Um, I, I do oh, actually want to oh, ask. Oh, I do actually want to ask Phil specifically, um, just in the context of, um, do you think that, uh, like, the lack of sideboards actually affects the process of deck selection? Um, that much like i'm like obviously the lack of sideboards affects like how you build decks etc do you think it affects like deck selection at all um i think it incentivizes you to have a game one plan that is either inherently extremely powerful or extremely flexible right mm. like 
using the Marwin example from a minute ago, like if you're if you're playing Marwin or some other like pseudo tribal deck list and your opponent sits down with Jessica, like, oh no, you don't get to fix that via sideboarding, right? Yeah. And so like I think while like maybe it might not be objectively on a lot of people's minds, I think after playing games with commanders or strategies that have like very glaring I, I would normally call it game one weaknesses, but they're just game weaknesses now. <laughs> I, th yeah. I think, like, you could probably be pretty easily described as just uh, probably commander reliance or over commander reliance a lot of the time. Yeah, and um, I, I think that's why a, a lot of CEDH decks just have these inherently powerful, like, ad nauseum or Thassa's Oracle based win conditions, or maybe your commander plus one other card win conditions. It's because, like, yeah, you might not have time to find your answer all of the time, or you might not have the deck building space or the flexibility for all of these answers. So, like, I think it's a factor, but I don't think most people sit down, like, start building their CEH deck and go like, oh, man, I can't sideboard, so I need to have everything in game one. I think it's more about having a decent number of win conditions or flexible answers. Right. Um, one thing I also want to talk about with uh, deck selection is, so I, I've kind of got, you know, people, talk, again, talking about, like, selecting the best deck or whatever. I, I think fundamentally, you know, CDH players are EDH players. And EDH players like to play the decks they enjoy, not necessarily what's always the best, right? And... You know, and like, like I said, there's there's arguments that you know the the brewer's advantage, as Phil put it, or you know the you know balancing or trying to fly under the radar, be uh, have your opponents not respect your deck a lot. That those can be advantages, but even still, I think people just don't always vibe with playing the best deck, or what, even if they can identify what they think the best deck is, they play strategies that they enjoy. Would you say it's similar in? I mean, certainly in Legacy, that you know. Would you say would you would you agree that Delver is, is the best deck in Legacy? Yes. And if everyone was playing the best deck or the deck that they thought would be the like beat the best deck, like we would have fifty percent Delver instead of, you know, twenty-two percent Delver. Right? <laughs> there yeah. is I think this internal itch for people to like try to break the format, to try to build the thing that beats the best thing instead of just playing the the best thing. And like I am someone who has usually played the deck that beats the best deck instead of playing the best deck. So, like, I'm guilty of this because, like, Death and Taxes is usually a deck that beats Delver. It is just, like, full of things that are super annoying for Delver. You tend to have a very good Delver matchup, but that comes at the cost of being relatively bad versus other powerful strategies like, say, Elves or Doomsday. So I mean I guess I guess there's yeah I think maybe it's it's less you know not not just an EDH player thing but probably just a magic and and you know human thing to want to to not want to always just do what's the best but to do something you enjoy the most but uh, I, I based off the fact that Delver's at you know twenty percent of the meta I, I I'd, I'd guess that there's just a bit more of a proclivity to choose the best deck um, in something like Legacy or, or just sixty card constructed. Another big difference between Legacy and CEDH here is the CEDH community is 100% pro-proxy all the time, 
whereas the legacy community is kind of split on it because many of the tournaments are like officially sanctioned events where proxies are not allowed and so switching decks on a dime is not nearly as easy in legacy mm. like to play CEDH, I, I bought a nice printer, and I printed decks. I bought some <laughs> dragon shields, and, like, that was that. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, um, I am full pro proxy, abolish the reserve list, absolutely a crusader. You, okay, well, you have my sword. Hold on. <laughs> yeah, wait. Let those me are, all those my are two different arguments. <laughs> I'm, I'm fully behind them. I'm fully behind them. Let's get it out. Of course you are. Of course you are. Um, okay, so actually, so we, had, we were going to save this for the last question, but I think um, since you brought up proxies, I think this is kind of just a good natural segue. Um, so we, our kind of last question was about like legacy itself and not necessarily kind of comparing to CDH necessarily directly, but it, it's as, as kind of all of us, um, myself, Matt, uh, Reed and, uh, like Morgan, we, we've joined the CDH community, not like right at the beginning, but like, you know, we, we were, we were, uh, in there when it wasn't pretty, too, pretty too early big. adopters yeah. yeah pretty pretty early adopters and we've got to see it grow into like i i i never would have imagined um that you know we'd we'd have a community this big uh where like deck specific discord servers have like three thousand members and uh you know cdh specific content um is as big as you know like playing with power like like they're massive um for just CDH specific content, so it, it's crazy to be to have seen the kind of growth of this um, format, and at the same time, so you know, I guess when I first joined Magic, and I, you know, I I'd, I'd looked with at Legacy like, ooh, this is so cool. This is like this is what the this is what the big guy big boys are playing. You know, that this is like you know real high level uh, high high level Magic. But it seems that um, I think especially with the pandemic and kind of listening to some different Legacy podcasts, it seems that uh legacy the player base of legacy seems to be a bit on the decline um and i wanted to uh kind of get you to speak on that a bit um maybe like uh what's it been like seeing the growth of uh cdh kind of come out of nowhere um is legacy declining a bit how do we get you know bring back interest in legacy is it is it proxies um you know what what are we doing here so the Two things happened at the same time that it wasn't a death blow to Legacy, but it was real bad. So Legacy got hit with this huge period of stagnancy where this fire design happened in this like post War of the Spark world where like Uro, Oko, Astrolabe, Mush took over the format. It was incredibly boring to play against for the most part. And it invalidated a huge number of decks. And I, I don't use that word lightly, but like almost overnight, you know, hundreds, thousands of people legacy decks just became obsolete and not tournament viable because of how powerful those cards were in conjunction. And that coupled with no bans, coupled with the pandemic hitting and making it so that like paper events weren't happening, like those two things hitting at the same time caused so many people to sell out of their legacy collection either because they were frustrated with the format they hit financial hardships due to the the pandemic they just like 
didn't like the the fire design and like legacy didn't feel like it used to that was really hard on the the format and things are better than they used to be but now we're in this like period of blue red delver dominance again uh and uh, there's a lot of just like malaise hanging around legacy and people aren't super excited about it for the most part um i guess just i'll just throw that is is cdh bigger slash more popular than legacy right now do you think it's, or is it it's approaching really or... hard for me to judge that like i'm new enough to the cedh community that like I, I don't feel like i can give you an authoritative answer here um here's what i'll say i feel like legacy is maintaining steam i don't i don't think it's like losing ground or not losing ground quickly okay. it's just kind of chilling Whereas CEDH is, like, revving its engines and getting ready to just, like, blast off into space. Mm. Like, the paper magic is coming back. People are organizing these CEDH events. It's starting to get the interest of, like, these ex-tournament grinders, these pros. It's starting to pick up more coverage. Uh, CEDH is, is probably going somewhere. Like, I think this is a format that if the logistics of tournaments ends up being like viable and okay and you know you end up with your version of the mtr and other magic rules documents that makes running tournaments like acceptable and and smooth like that that format probably has a real future especially if like the uh air quotes sanctioned events uh are yeah. as uh <laughs> proxy friendly as they the community as a whole is because I definitely feel there's a weird kind of like like legacy, and you can you can clarify me on this because I am by no means a, an expert on the format history. But my understanding is that there was it's a it is also very much a community format, right? A community driven format, unlike something you know like standard or maybe even modern at this point, where it's you know Watsy can kind of it's more Watsy driven. Um, so I've always kind of viewed uh, CDH, um, a Legacy, as almost like the big brother of CDH um, in a lot of respects. Like, you know, the Legacy community kind of did it first, and then the CDH community has kind of been, you know, cribbing a lot of the notes from uh, Legacy. And, and we, we picked up a lot of different habits. I mean, you know, we picked up uh, different strategies from Legacy decks. We picked up the uh, terrible naming convention of legacy oh, decks <laughs> yeah i, yeah. I CEDH players stop now your format <laughs> is young enough where you can save yourself from this shit every day every day i record a video and you know what the first thing i have to do is explain my deck name i have to tell you why my deck is nick fit or cheerios or ice station yeah. zebra and let oh, me tell on, you, hooks is a great after name. a while, like people forget why these names existed, and they become false versions of why the name is the way it is. Save yourself now. I, the, I think we're, I think we're too has, deep into this yeah, point. Farm, farm is like the worst thing to have uh, the CDH. Man. Yeah, farm it is, is. It's like they named it. it. The name came because of like bruce tarl being like a, a farmer some like internal headcanon of like bruce tarl having a farm with with timna or something like that right um and then it's just it's exploded no one even knows what it really means F farm anymore. basically just, just means it to sound now. cool <laughs> um 
but yeah, so I, I think we, we took a lot of, as a CDH community, we took a lot of lessons from Legacy. Um, and obviously we, we, we did uh, a couple things different, but I'd be interested to kind of um, see, you know, as, as CDH, like you're saying, is, is kind of revving up and Legacy is in a kind of bit of a holding pattern. Um, is there anything to, for that Legacy can learn um, from CDH, uh, what the CDH community has done? to kind of rev up interest in legacy because honestly i think there's a lot of there there is a bit of a legacy to cdh pipeline from you know i've talked to many players who's like oh i used to play legacy and i want to play commander and cdh kind of seemed right up my alley uh and there's there's there is similarities in card pool um the competitive mindset play patterns you know there's there's card overlap so Dude, there does seem to be like CDH players, or maybe would be the kind of people who would enjoy Legacy. So, how do we, um, you know, maybe get more cross pollination going on between uh, between our two formats? Um, collaborative content is kind of the easiest way to cross the streams successfully, right? Like, I have been invited on a handful of both EDH and CEDH streams in the last couple of weeks. That has absolutely welcomed me into the format. Uh, you know kindled my interest for the format, you know, made me wanting to make resources for the, the format, you know, reaching out to people and actively trying to incorporate them into your community is the way that you, you grow your community. Um, a lot of people who play Legacy are the same people who have been playing Legacy forever, and their collections are massive. And how do they get people into the community? For them, it's often like lending decks so new people can try out the format and see if they like it. On the CEDH side, where everything is proxied, it's not lending the decks, it's, it's lending your time, it's, it's lending your platform. You know, reach out to these people who you might be interested. Say, hey, we have an open spot for this pod on X day. Do you want to put together a deck and try this out with us? You know, I, I think the excitement and the energy that people have for CEDH can be contagious if you if you actively branch out and reach out to new people. I think I think you know um what you're saying with the CDH players welcoming kind of legacy players in um trying to get get uh, you guys interested in our format. Yeah, maybe maybe we need to do a bit of uh a bit of the opposite direction as well, you know, maybe maybe uh put on like a a, a legacy cdh player invitational or something like that right where we're getting a bunch of like people who've never really done stuff in legacy before uh we're used to cdh and and kind of drum up some interest that way you know there, there's all kinds of different things that uh you know that, that we could go on but i you know i would i i love listening to legacy content and watching legacy content and maybe you know i'm part of the problem because i haven't you know made the jump to actually playing too much legacy but uh you know i i I want. I definitely want to see that community um, prosper as well. I'll I'll give a example of this. Um, Rebel reached out to me today saying, "Hey, how would you feel about swapping an hour of each each other's time? Like, I'll ask you questions about competitive play and sixty card formats, and you ask me questions about CEDH stuff. And like, we haven't set a time to do that yet, but like, that's something we're going to do, and that is going to help both of us immensely." Because let mm. me tell you, like, I've been playing CEH for a couple of weeks now. I've, I've probably played about two dozen games. I don't know what you mean when you say the farm, right? Like, <laughs> yes. I, I don't point. know when, yeah. what you point. mean when you use, like, all these colloquialisms unique to your, your format. Like, I definitely 
have things to learn from someone who has the time to talk to me about them. Okay, let's just be yeah. clear about farm. No one knows what farm means. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it means whatever it, it means whatever the context demands. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, this is stacks farm. This is mid range yeah. farm. This is it's <laughs> it's uh, well, well, it was like the Michael Scott quote from the office is of like he's explaining like and I think it's like the pilot like Kesara Sarah. He's like it's just kind of like a non sequitur. You know, you just say it. <laughs> it's a, that's what farm is, man. You just say it, and it's. Uh, whatever um cool so got a couple more questions here uh before we move into the gut check uh so i'll let uh reed and matt uh get these ones yeah definitely um i think i'll uh probably just ask a pretty simple one um it, are there any like single cards that you would love to like sort of poured into or like stick into cdh decks and play with that like you haven't really seen people playing with from legacy or like other formats at all i don't think i have seen enough of the deck pool to accurately answer that question because i'm sure, sure. i could say a card here and then someone would be like well no that's in the sticky fingers deck actually <laughs> i mean it might oh, well, be strictly we'll, for we'll fend them off for you <laughs> Yeah, is is there any are there any like specific ones just from your uh like current uh experience with the format that you haven't seen that you want to? Um, no, I I can't think of anything off the top of my head here. There have yeah, been a okay. couple of times okay. where I'm like, why isn't this in this deck list? And then I started thinking about like number of slots you're dedicating to things, and it's like, oh, that mm. that's probably why. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Matt. Yeah, and I guess that similar vein. <laughs> Uh, if you could port over, you know, a particular legacy deck or strategy that you haven't seen in CEDH, you know, I've you were playing Mono White Helia today, but what would it be? So uh, I've, I've talked a little bit about this with other people. The issue with a lot of legacy decks is they are built to kill one person. Um, one of the most iconic legacy combo decks is Painter Servant plus Grindstone, which is an infinite mill combo. Or by similar logic, you have Leyline of the Void plus Helm of Obedience. Well, guess what? Those only kill one person at a time. And in a four-player combat scenario, like all of a sudden, that's not viable anymore. And similarly, there's plenty of other strategies, say like a burn deck, you know, a Boggles-style deck list where you're trying to like suit up one thing that become a lot less attractive in multiplayer combats. So... While in theory it sounds really cool to try to like port legacy ideas into CEDH or maybe port CEDH decks into legacy, the differences between formats often mean that you can't do that for everything. Sometimes it'll work. You know, you can take a Death and Taxes style decklist and port that into CEDH. You can take an Elves style decklist and port that into CEDH, but it doesn't work all of the time. I actually think you would have more success porting CEDH combos into Legacy because Ooh, the cards that you are playing are still objectively very powerful. They just are maybe a little slower than normal. Uh, so, so for example, you can take the Birthing Pod chain that's available in the... What's the mono-red commander that has, like, a five-color activated ability? Uh... 
Mono red? It's mono. With five color? You mean yeah, Nijila? it's like a red commander. It's got oh, Najila, Najila. Najila, yeah, sorry. Yeah. yeah, so like I've played a decent number of games versus Najila pod. That whole pod chain that that deck uses to combo off is like, that is available in Legacy. And if you can activate your birthing pod and it always wins you the game, yeah. that is a viable fringe strategy that like you can probably play in a league and get a 3-2 with, right? Like that is the sort of thing that I could make a video with and it would be entertaining. I think you can create low level, low power level legacy decks that can do okay from CEDH decks. And like you can do that for funsies. And then maybe every once in a while you will actually create something that's good. But just mm -hmm. as a reminder, most brews fail and that's okay. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah, CEDH players have a bit of an obsession. With legacy, it's legacy. It's not vintage. It's not modern. It's specifically with legacy and porting over, like, maybe not porting over directly, but making decks that are kind of like similar or analogous to legacy decks. So an example would be with uh, Delver, right? It's like, how the hell would you port over Delver to CDH? Well, what people will sometimes refer to as their uh, Delver deck or Delver style deck is uh, like Jessica Ishai. Where the idea is that you're going to slam Ishai, which whenever an opponent casts a spell, it puts a plus one, plus one counter on it. Um, and you're and just going to try and play, yeah, and that's flying. And you're just going to try and play hard, like, control people, don't let them win the game. And then you're just going to uh, chip in uh, at their life totals with this giant flying <laughs> command. That gets triple strike from yeah. Jessica sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, and then there's like elf ball style decks for elves. There's like doomsday decks, Thoracle decks. Oh, I mean, all, all the like, classic, so, like, yeah, all so the classic CDH combos basically are all directly derived from either current like legacy decks or old legacy decks. Where it's like, yeah, Hermit Druid. Basically, the entire strategy is based off of like old Hermit Druid decks from Extended, and like, <laughs> yeah, Food Chain. Basically, an exact rip of Legacy Food Chain <laughs> for the most part from that strategy, or like Doomsday, or just like any of these other combos. Bring me the one that. I think there's yeah like paint I know I think there are some decks that run painter grindstone but they're like there's not many a lot of them uh, actually old, use old it to mill themselves style. instead of milling opponents because yeah. you can actually target yourself with the grindstone so you can see stuff like a uh, Duretti and mono red will actually sometimes play painter grindstone so they can mill themselves out and then uh weld with Duretti to get something back from the bin <laughs> I feel like the least maybe maybe one that's has some viability that just isn't been poured over at all um I mean, it's hard to definitely find space for it, certainly, but, like, a Lurin combo or something like that. Yeah, a Lurin is sort of, like, the... It's, like, the Holy Grail combo piece for CDH because, like, nobody has actually really been able to make it work as a standalone. Um, you uh, Obviously, Holland can play it. Um, just, like, Bant. <laughs> yeah. Like, Bant, Bant Lurin with the outlet in the command zone as long as you have a self-bounce uh, creature. But, like, I, I don't think anybody has ever successfully put together a four or five color Lurin deck. So it's I like think I can just... explain why that is. I have a lot of experience yeah, Please do. Yep. <laughs> please explain to our viewers why you should never play a Lurin in CDH. Because we've been trying to get, or I've been trying to get this point across at least for, like, four years at this point to people. <laughs> okay, let's, let's use a more simplistic example here. Let's use show and tell where you and your opponent both get to put a thing into play, right? You put in your big bad Emrakul, and most of the time, your opponent is going to put in something less cool than Emrakul, and accordingly, you get to win the game. By rule of cool, of course. You yes. just put in the cooler thing. Put in the cooler thing, you win the game. <laughs> However, when you move this to a multiplayer format, and you cast your show and tell, like, card, now it's not you versus one person, 
Now it's you versus three other people. And with Aluren specifically, like, can you imagine the number of cards that your opponents can cast for free if they have, like, oh. close to full grip? I, I don't have to yeah. imagine. I've witnessed it. Yeah. Like, there's so many, like, opposition agent-style yep. cards in the format, especially if someone yep. is playing, like, a mono-white deck. Like, trying to combo off with an Aluren, like, often works in Legacy because it's a two-card combo, and you're expecting that your opponent isn't going to have very many interactive creatures. But a lot of lower curve interactive creatures are played in this format, even in decks that aren't necessarily all about hate bears, right? Because like yep. powerful cards like Containment Priest can kind of like screw over one or sometimes multiple of your opponents. Yeah. Yeah. Makes there, a lot there's of sense. Also, there's also the secondary issue with Learn and CDH as well, which is the fact that it's it's sort of like a density-based combo deck in terms of, like, you have your four Learns, but a lot of the time in 60-card Learn, um, the rest of the deck is all sort of stuff that either, like, digs toward additional combo pieces or is, like, sort of protection or is just, like, value. Like, you're you're playing, like, a probably a place that... I, I haven't looked in the Learn list recently, don't yell at me legacy players i'm assuming you're on like a play set of like ice fan quaddles a play set of like baleful strixes you're on some recruiters like you had a lot of stuff that like finds other stuff or like keeps the gas going cdh you get like one baleful strix one ice fan quaddle two <laughs> recruiters and then you have to fill the other 94 cards of your deck out <laughs> yeah yeah i mean decks that are trying to force a card are typically pairing that up with some commander synergy right yeah exactly so once we get our commander that somehow works with Lurin, I'm happy. Well, I mean, we, which we do have. Like, let's be clear, Holland does do a lot of stuff with that card, but it's it isn't Bant, unfortunately enough. <laughs> it doesn't fix the problem. Yeah. Okay. So I think that's a good point to uh, wrap up our main interview and move on to everyone's favorite segment: Gut Check. Gut Check. <sighs> Okay, so we're going to be taking a slight detour from the normal way we approach Gut Check. What we've done is we've, uh, we thought it'd be interesting to compile a list of uh, a couple cards that, you know, some that are highly played in CDH, some that are more played in Legacy, uh, and do a bit of a card evaluation gauntlet with Phil here. So we're going to give a card and we're going to get Phil to give us a rating out of five. Uh, five being the highest, one the worst, uh, or I guess zero the worst. Uh, for CEDH, um, you know, to the best of, of his understanding, and give us a brief explanation um, as to why he thinks it's either, you know, good, bad, or medium. All right, this and will be we'll, fun. We'll, yeah. read out, we'll read out the card with the card decks as well, just in case you're not familiar. Yeah, one crucial Although, aspect you forgot uh, to some of these, <laughs> Some of these are pretty, yeah. Yeah. Um, one crucial so, aspect uh, you're missing here is our audience will see this in pull form and will potentially grade your assignment and uh, give you a final mark. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so what we're going to do, yeah, what we'll, we'll do is uh, uh, we'll post this to our uh, Discord server. We've got a gut check channel. Um, so normally we do a kind of like a, a poll style. But what I think we're going to do is just give it like a thumbs up or thumbs down. So whether or not they think you've, you've got a passing grade or a failing grade. So uh, if, the, if you've got more thumbs up than thumbs down, then uh, mission, mission accomplished. You did it uh okay uh i'll uh kick things off with a card that we've mentioned uh earlier uh in the episode and that would be ristic study 
so <laughs> just as a reminder, Ristic Study uh, is a blue enchantment for two and a blue. Whenever an opponent casts a spell, you may draw a card unless that player pays one generic mana. Uh, card's pretty good. Uh, it is not a card that literally wins the game. It is not like an ad nauseum in that regard, but this represents an absolutely absurd amount of advantage. Um, I'd probably rate this one at like a 4.5. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and this is, this is uh, you know, again, I'll throw back mention to um, uh, Drake uh, Sasser. I think he was, he was saying on uh, the miscast about how when he first came to EDH, he was like, Ristics, why would this card, why is this card good? You know, and I think that sometimes 60 card players have a bit of this, uh, you, you could see why, right? You look at Ristics and you're like, well, I mean, it's a three mana asymmetrical uh, sphere resistance until they don't want it to be anymore, right? It's always going to be whichever is the worst of those two for you. Um, so sees basically no 60 card play. Um, but uh, sees play at every level of commander, and in commander, it is an all star. Uh, so yeah, kind of uh, interesting on that one. Uh, yeah, you gave me a layup along. for the first one. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that was an easy one. Um, so borrowing cards from other formats a little bit here. Preordain. I I feel like I don't have to read this one out, but you know, for the audience, I guess I will. Uh, one blue sorcery, scry two, then draw a card. And we, we can also lump in like ponder, brainstorm, just kind of like those. I, I think the good think legacy probably, cantrips in general. I think you probably separate brainstorm from those. Yeah. Sure, yeah, sure, like sure. Maybe sure. ponder, but yeah, you you could give all of those separate ratings if you want. But uh, I think it's I do best to just keep your, it to the uh, one. Your take on cantrips? Uh, sure. They feel maybe more like like threes or three point fives. Like they are absolutely playable, but you have access to a lot of tutors that are banned in legacy and i like when you can play a tutor to find your your two card combo rather than digging for it with a cantrip that feels preferable to me um like cantrips absolutely feel playable to me but i don't see a lot of people spending time casting normal cantrips especially when they can just like outright draw cards uh like via like timna or ristic studies or stuff like that so like cards fine like good power level card like is going to make it into decks but i am a lot less excited about these uh, with the exception of brainstorm brainstorm is still stupid uh so i think it was actually your co-host uh brian cook who i was listening to uh an episode where he was guesting on um and he was saying that he's moved off of cantrips um in his rog silas deck uh which is something that you know i've been very anti-cantrip in cdh for a while i mean not just generically i mean it depends on the deck but uh Unless there's like an obvious synergy, I, I tend not to be a fan of them. Uh, so it was interesting to see um, a player who obviously, you know, knows the, the strength of cantrips uh, decide to move off of them in uh, CEDH as well. Um, so yeah, that was, that was really interesting. I, I think it definitely has to do with the, the fact that the Xerox kind of philosophy um, in Legacy and it just, it can't be uh, ported over directly to... Uh, CDH in with a hundred card singleton. Yeah, without turning um, this into a huge bit, the difference is in Legacy you get to play four preordain, four yeah. brainstorm, four ponder. <laughs> yeah. The redundancy is huge there. And if you're like pondering, looking at three cards, 
of your, you know, 90 cards remaining in your library looking for one thing, like, you are not getting nearly as far. So, like, I think this have a much higher it... density of shuffle effects, too. Yeah. So, like, in I, 60 card, yeah. I, I think this makes it in some decks, but, you know, this isn't winning me games. Okay. <laughs> Great. Maybe what do we got up next? Next up, we got a... Uh... I would I would call this one a multi-format all-star um, until yeah. it wasn't. <laughs> um, so next up we have Treasure Cruise uh, again for the audience. I don't know who doesn't know. These cards. Uh, it it seems weird anyway. to talk about these cards. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it costs seven and a blue to cast. It's a sorcery and it reads draw three cards. <laughs> it has delve. It also has. It does delve. have delve. Sorry, it, it has delve. It, it would Set not it be good if it didn't have. Delve. It would not be good if it was eight mana draw three at sorcery speed. <laughs> so this feels pretty close to unplayable to me uh let's call this like a 1.5 like treasure cruise okay. is an absurd card this like absolutely got banned in legacy but i feel like a difference here is that in legacy like you can afford to like pay three mana for your treasure cruise when you need to do that and that, like, doing something like that in CEDH, like, sounds so much more scary if you're a blue deck. You're not holding up your, your fluster storms or, uh, you know, whatever other piece of interaction you want to be holding up. And I think you run into two other problems here with Treasure Cruise. One is that people are randomly going to play graveyard hate cards, like, rest in peace. Like, just because, like, graveyards are such an important resource because you have, like, breach decks, reanimator decks, and whatever. And the other is just, like, the the time required to get set like six or seven cards in graveyard to make this reasonable doesn't feel great um i would rather get my card advantage from other sources than something like a treasure cruise cool Fair enough. yeah I, I definitely and i think uh probably another one um i i think all those reasonings are totally valid by the way uh, I, I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head there i think another one as well for our listeners is that um uh in uh 60 card formats where you're treasure cruising a lot of the time you have a high density of effects that allow you to self-mill yourself as well as uh having additional like effects that you want like you're fine playing a four of thought scour in a deck if you can play a treasure cruise in it um you're getting sort of replacement as well as fueling your ancestral recall for later you just don't really have the same density of self-mill in cdh it's just a lot harder it takes a lot longer to get stuff into your bin a lot of the time unless your commander is expressly like doing that kind of stuff like self-milling or wants cards in your graveyard so you can justify playing those self-mill cards cool cool uh next up uh we, we were going through a couple uh a couple legacy all-stars here uh next up we've got counterbalance which is an enchantment for uh double uh blue blue whenever an opponent plays a spell you may reveal the top card of your library if you do counter that spell if it has the same converted mana cost as the revealed card so I did see one of these in play earlier today, to be fair. <laughs> um, I am nice. not necessarily overly impressed by counterbalance in a three-player format. You are going to have more chances to just, like, randomly spike things and counter things, but you don't run into as many situations where you can brainstorm successfully in order to put the correct thing on top with counterbalance i think if you have something in your deck like a commander that synergizes with this it seems okay 
but I'm I'm not excited to be running this card. I'd probably call it like a two. Okay. Um. Yeah. So one thing, uh, unlike in sixty card decks that run counterbalance, and I mean it's it's seen play in um. I mean it's most notorious for or infamous, I guess, from Legacy with uh, miracles. Yeah. Um, but it's also seen play in modern with, uh, with cards like Mishra's Bobble and, uh, uh, Mystic Sanctuary. So they're, they're very focused, you know, especially with, with Brainstorm, um, top, just manipulating the top card of your deck to basically, you know, be able to counter anything. Uh, the way it's played in CDH, I mean, there are, there are, you know, decks that run counterbalance top, but, uh, top is not quite as good uh in cdh um as it is in, in something like legacy and when decks are running counterbalance often they're relying on the ability to kind of reset the top of their library or um rely on kind of the the blind flip factor so when a lot of decks in cdh are extremely low mana curve with um probably you know 40 percent of spells being one or two drops so when you have a counterbalance in play uh and your opponent is let's say has a uh Thassa's oracle and demonic consultation in hand and there's a counterbalance and it's not been flipped on you know something you know like a mana dork right because you don't you don't want to flip on something and reveal the top just to you know maybe get a, a snag a dork you want to kind of maintain that um mystery and so it's it's really difficult to kind of just willingly jam your thoracle consult into a counterbalance when there's a 40 percent chance they're going to be able to flip on one of your two combo pieces uh and their counter spells in hand are not going to do anything be able to do anything about it so that's there's a bit i think of a different philosophy um to counterbalance in cdh but uh you know the jury the jury is is uh i guess still out uh a bit on counterbalance it's not a widely um accepted staple i would say uh cool um yeah next up sure next up uh we've got wheel of fortune so two and a red sorcery each player discards their hand and then draws seven cards so wheels to me feel like fives in certain decks and zeros in other decks <laughs> so <laughs> amen <laughs> if if you are the defense grid deck and like you have put your shields off and you are storming off or comboing off or whatever like the wheel of fortune is great for you in that style of deck but in no world in absolutely no world do i want to be playing fair magic where i feed seven new cards to a bunch of like degenerates who have sat down for games of cedh like i i do not want to be playing wheel of fortune because i am a red deck i want to be playing wheel of fortune because i feel like i am doing the most unfair stuff at the table or like i am doing this while having protection kind of sounds like the zero slash five score I, i i like that i like that yeah um so we've got two more i like the full the full uh split there yeah. yeah um so for our next one uh we got a bit of a bit of a weirder one um we got ourselves strip mine uh yeah, we, we thought about putting on wasteland and we're like 
No, no, no. Let's put on no, strip no. mines. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> put on the put on the the much cooler version. Yeah, um, yeah, well, depending on what side of the table you're on. Uh, so strip mine is just a land that taps for colorless and can also tap and sacrifice itself to destroy target land. Ah, <laughs> uh, maybe like a one point five. Like these, I I love strip mines and wastelands and ghost quarters and all the cards of this style. Um, oh, yeah, we, we but know like you the do. reason those are usually viable is because they are going and supplementing a plan of choking your opponent on resources. And it is so hard to simultaneously choke three other players on resources while also advancing some other game that you have. I, I understand wanting to have the utility of some land destruction in your deck list, but like this would be a time where I would be looking at mana bases and going like, do I need an out to your random maze of ith, or do I need an out, or sorry, do I just need more colored pips so I can cast my spells properly? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think you you nailed it. Um, the the deck that probably used to be, I don't think any deck runs. I mean, I'm not gonna say that. There's probably decks that strip mine. <laughs> Azusa but, does, but that's Azusa. But like, so so the 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 deck that's probably best suited to run strip mine is Gitrog. Um, because it runs Ramanup, Excavator, and Life from the Loam, and is very much, you know, and it's also cantripping off of strip mining people. It gets multiple strip lines. And, default, and additional yeah. land drops. So there, there is a deck that is, like, perfectly set up to abuse strip mine and does not run it, um, and it was cut years ago, uh, simply basically for the reasons you were saying. One, it's like, it, your mana, in, in 1v1, uh, when you strip mine someone, it's a... Uh, I guess I'll, I'll put it in brackets because I mean we could probably spend an entire episode evaluating um, uh, strip mines and wasteland land destruction in uh, in sixty card. But yeah, it, it's it's a one for one, right? You're spending one one land to remove a land from your opponent. Um, maybe you got a bit more of an advantage because you get to select which land that is. But in uh, four player free for all, obviously it's you've got f uh, three opponents, and uh, you know trading that one for one uh, land resources also putting you down on mana as well. So yeah, people have moved off of uh, of that. Listen, I I so I did play a uh, a brief stint in like a modified ban list format where a lot of the stuff was taken off the ban list, and I did put strip mine back into get rug when I was playing with fast bond because uh, that's. Yeah, that's okay. just <laughs> sure. Like Ram in, in that world, absolutely. Yeah. When you can strip mine <laughs> yeah. every land in a turn cycle, yeah, go go nuts. Live live your best life. Um, <laughs> awesome. And then our right. last one here is Steel Enchantment. Uh, hold on, let me let me uh, pull this. Yeah, up. you can't you can't screw this one. Yeah, yeah. For, <laughs> so, for for context, Phil, this is the exact reason why we've been, why we've been reading all these out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the Steel Enchantment. Uh, blue, blue, Enchant Enchantment. Um, so, uh, it's game control of Enchanted Enchantment. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, you, you use this to steal a Ristic study or other similarly powerful thing. Um, I don't know. I I could understand playing this. Like, in some ways, it would be better than playing a removal spell, like a single target removal spell on something. But, like, this is a sorcery speed answer to a single permanent. 
where if your answer to their answer is later answered, they get their thing back. Um, I'm, I'm not really super excited about this. I get that there are higher than average level densities of powerful enchantments in this format, but I don't know. I'm, I'm not super gung-ho about this. I'll say like a two. Well, you know what? sorry guys, Phil's kicked off the show. Uh, this was yeah. a great episode. <laughs> you, might, you might only right. see Morgan, uh, Lyndon, Reed, and I downvote this and the rest of our audience upvote it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, think, uh, I, I, think, I think, too, you've actually been very generous for what is effectively a pet card for our local meta. Um, okay. <laughs> I don't even think it's that pet card for local meta, man. I, 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 I oh, am it, a big it, stand of this card. Totally no, okay, our uh, local meta, it's insane. But I, I I do think um, there are some decks that uh, where if you're a control deck and you can't beat Remoras and Ristic Studies that basically stick around forever in the mid or late game, um, like let's because you're trying to you know maintain your card advantage and kind of eke that out. Whereas if you're casting a spell like every time into someone's Remora, uh, it it can just be impossible to ever you know really control that game. So Steel Enchantment. Uh, well, I mean, also, I guess in Mono Blue, the best kind of removal you have for enchantments anyway is Bounce, and that's like, Bounce plus or Counterspell just, is stealing is them. really, really uh, uh, mediocre. So the fact that you can remove one of these problematic uh, permits, other Remora, uh, Ristic Study, Carpet of Flowers, especially in, uh, in Mono Blue, uh, and then develop one for yourself is honestly uh, huge. So I, I, I like it even outside of our meta, but... Uh, I do think there's there's a enough strong enchantments to uh, to work it, and, and honestly, you know, I'm 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 a bit hurt, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll accept it. <laughs> <laughs> he'll sir, he'll live. <laughs> yeah. Um. Cool. So I think uh, you know, I, and I said to all of our listeners, we can uh, you can vote on how uh, let let us let let us know how Phil did. Uh, I, I think he did pretty good. Uh, he, did, he did definitely. I, I think these are pretty well. great, honestly. Yeah. I, um, I spend so much time evaluating bad cards contextually. I've gotten pretty good <laughs> at it. <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, I just we you know want to give a a big thanks for uh, making the time to come on our show, and uh, we want to give you an opportunity to uh, plug your shit. <laughs> so uh, yeah, go plug away. I know we we plugged a bit at the beginning, but uh, let us know what you're up to, where to find you, and whatnot. Yeah, uh, please give me a follow on Twitter at ThrabenU, T-H-R-A-B-E-N-U, and you can find me on YouTube under the same name. If you're going to watch one video to see whether or not you like my content, I recommend check checking out my Yokel Hops video. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a banger, and uh, it, it plays some very fun, very silly cards and is a very entertaining league. Awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks again, Phil, for coming on. Uh, that about wraps it up for this episode. If you guys would like to reach out to us with any questions, comments, or concerns, you can contact us on Twitter at IntoNorthPod, via our email, IntoNorthPodcast at gmail.com, or on our Discord server, the invite link for which can be found in the description for this episode. An extra special thanks to all of our patrons who help cover the expenses for our show and allow us to work towards improving the quality of the podcast. If you too would like to become a patron, we are at patreon.com slash IntoNorthPodcast. Another way you can support us is via our TCG Player affiliate link. So anytime you want to purchase something from TCG Player, if you use our affiliate link, which is in the podcast slash YouTube description, a portion of your purchase goes towards supporting the podcast. Thank you, as always, to the band Vox Cadre for our lovely podcast music. 
Uh, and to Nate Slepper for our equally lovely podcast logo. Uh, next episode will be, uh, next episode will be out in two weeks. Until then, see ya. Bye. See ya.